Guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Well, before some reflections on our, on our Feast of the Assumption today, just want to, first of all, uh, invite you to take a bulletin today and make sure you read up a little bit about our, our seminarian who's attending to the, to the incense at the moment. Aaron Waldeck will be with us for the year. There's some information about him, and he'll be at the back of church after Mass to, uh, to introduce himself and say hello. So I hope you get a chance to do so before you leave today. But, uh, of course, he'll be here all year. So we're looking forward to having him here and giving him a chance to experience our parish communities, uh, but also benefit from his, his learning and his desire to teach. So we're very glad. Uh, ask your prayers for him and his continued studies for the priesthood. Today we, we do celebrate the Feast of the Assumption, which if it doesn't feel very familiar to you, this is normally a feast that we would celebrate on precisely the day, August 15th, no matter where it falls in the week, only rarely does it does it happen to fall on a Sunday? So this isn't something that we celebrate at our weekend masses every single year. Nonetheless, it's, it's an important day. It's usually a holy day of obligation. And uh, it, it offers us a chance to reflect on maybe the last of the, of the mysteries of Mary's life, the doctrines of Mary's life that, uh, well, that the church has defined as, as dogmas of, of faith. Those, those beliefs, of course, are that Mary was immaculately conceived. She, she was preserved from the stain of original sin from the first moment of her conception. And that that was a particular grace given to her by God in light of Jesus. That is, Mary can call Jesus her Savior just as much as the rest of us. Because it was by Jesus' sacrifice that Mary was preserved. So too, Mary gave birth while remaining a virgin. Mary was a virgin throughout her life. Her perpetual virginity is another defined belief about Mary. That childbearing, the curses associated with childbearing are associated with the punishment for sin. And that Mary was given the grace of becoming the mother of God. And in light of that, she had this um, she, she was, she was uh, in a sense, caught up into the, the grace of paradise itself, where Adam and Eve would have been created to live in perpetual virginity. And so, too, uh, the, the gifts of Mary culminate in this final grace of her life, that she was assumed body and soul into heaven. And this assumption was meant to show that the privileges given to Jesus in, in light of his, uh, his identity as the Savior are extended to every single one of us. We who die with Christ are to be raised with him. And Mary, in light of her particular, her particular role within the scheme or the plan of salvation, has been, um, I guess, given that first benefit, right? That she was taken body and soul into heaven. And that's this, this feast we celebrate today. But notice that each of, those, each of those beliefs about Mary all flow from her relationship to Christ. Ultimately, Mary is declared the mother of God because Christ is the Savior in person. That is, God was born. He was born as you and I are born in Jesus. 
Mary wasn't simply the mother of Jesus' human aspects. Mary was the mother of the whole of Jesus' identity, of his person. And that he was truly born of a woman. And so Mary can truly be called the mother, not just of Jesus, but of God. All of these beliefs about Mary flow from Christ's identity as our Savior, as God incarnate, and as the resurrection and the life. So the Feast of the Assumption today is, is an important one. However, I'd like to just veer a little bit from the particular commentary on this, on this feast and remark about some of the circumstances that this time of year always reminds me of. I, as you know, I was a, a chaplain at the Newman Center there at, the, at Emporia State University for five years before I, I came here to Kansas City, Kansas. And this time of year was always a time when we would start welcoming students back after their summer breaks. They'd be showing up on campus, moving into the dorms or their apartments, uh, reconnecting after being away for the summer. But at the Diddy Center, at the, the Student Center, the Catholic Center there at Emporia State, we always took these days immediately before the start of classes to go on a, a short little retreat. We'd go up to Lake Wabunsi. We stayed at the home of a, of a benefactor right on the lake there. And we would basically prepare the fall retreat. All the students that had agreed to become leaders of our, of our annual student retreat would come back after having spent the summer working and preparing their, their talks and reflections, and we would practice them. They would all you know, do a dry run of their, of their talks to try to work out the kinks and make sure that we were all flowing together really well. So a really great time. It almost always fell on this Feast of the Assumption. We would we typically have mass at the, at the house there. And for me, this feast is always associated here in these last few years with this, with this particular practice. And I'd like to tell you about the book that we spent so much time on. We used a little book to, to become the basis of this retreat. I read this book probably four or five times over the course of my years down there as we took up these retreat talks every summer. It's a book that I wish was better known. It's part of the reason we used it on this retreat. It's a book written by a man named Frank Sheed, maybe in the 50s or 40s. And it was entitled, A Map of Life. A Map of Life. I'd like to maybe just share with you the paragraphs uh, at the very beginning of the book describing why he wanted to use that image and why it was something that motivated him to write the book. A book which, by the way, if you're looking for a clear, very tightly written, concise, and beautiful explanation of how all of the beliefs of our Catholic faith fit together, you couldn't find many that are, that are better. He says... A traveler through a strange country will get vivid impressions of individual things, but only a confused impression of the country in its totality. He remembers this mountain, that stream, or this other village, but how one is related to the other and the general winding of roads that he's barely glimpsed cannot, in the nature of things, stand clear in his mind. 
And a map of the whole country seen at the end of his travels may very well be full of surprises. And in any case, is a totally new view of the ground he's traveled. Imagine, as a, just as an example of painting the picture of what he's, what he's describing here. Imagine, imagine you were to take a canoe trip down the Missouri River. You got in a canoe or in a boat in Kansas City, floated down river to St. Louis. And imagine if you were required to draw a rough map of the path of that river as it traveled. You'd have bends and turns. You might keep that straight for a while, but soon you'd lose your orientation. How far have I gone? How long does this stretch compare to the other stretches that I've been down? Right? You would attempt a map. And then at the end of that journey, if you went and compared that to an actual map of the Missouri River, chances are it would be pretty, pretty surprising how drastic the differences were between what you perceived as someone traveling on the river but then the river as a whole, seen from afar. That's what Frank Sheet is saying here about the nature of our travels. And the same thing happens in our travels through life. Life is a journey. In very much the same way, we get vivid impressions. We have a sense of the progress that we're making through life. And we have impressions of things that are very close or near at hand. And those things are clear to us, but things that are far off or it's hard to see, we're less clear about those. Or things that we only hear about, things that we know about secondhand. But of the whole of our life, Sheed goes on, we really have no idea, no clear idea at all. In our minds are a jumble of facts tossed about in any order. Facts about God, sin, going to church, sacraments, illness, suffering, feeling betrayed by people we care about, death, the fear of death, money, the loss of money, Jesus made man, right? All these things without end are piled up. And it's hard for us to understand and really perceive which of these things are, in fact, large things and which of them are little things. Because the things that come nearest to us seem big, and the further away things seem to us very small. And how these things relate to each other, how they may be in conflict with one another, all of this, like the traveler down the river, we have no clear sense of how it all fits together. In fact, it may happen that someone who doesn't try to trace their progress through the journey of life doesn't even begin to suspect that there's anything that brings these things together. That there is, in fact, a cohesive whole and a meaning that links all these seemingly unrelated things together and thinks that there's really no relationship whatsoever. It's just one accident after the next. They have no connection other than the fact that one happened before 
the other. For this reason, the author of this little book took it upon himself to create such a map, a map of life, a map in which the principal features of life will be shown in their right proportions and the roads between them drawn in. This map is not a map that he himself created. It's not the fruit of his own experience of life, nor is it the fruit of anyone's experience of life. This map is a transcript of what God, the author of life, has revealed as to the meaning of the whole and the relations of the parts. I encourage you, if you find yourself sympathetic to that sense that life isn't really a journey from one place with a destination to the next, but that, in the words of Henry Ford, life is just kind of one damn thing after another, to get a map. Get a map. And get the map that can be trusted more than any other. How do we know a map is trustworthy, by the way? Well, there's two ways. One is you can use it to go to your destination. Say, I want to get to Leavenworth. I get a map of the road to Leavenworth. I get in my horse and buggy, and what do you know? I get to Leavenworth, no problem. I trust that map now. The only other way that we can find a worthy map is to find a worthy map maker. Someone who can be trusted without, with total certainty. Here's the problem. In life, if we want to verify the map and its effectiveness by our own experience, we come up with a, a, a little bit of a problem. If it turns out to be a bad map, we'll be at the end of our life. There's no second chance to find a better one. We need, if we are to find a trustworthy map, to resort to the credentials of the map maker. That's the only way we can find a trustworthy map through life. And in this case, the only trustworthy map maker is God himself. So I encourage you, to spend a little time with this little book. It's not, it's not big. 100 pages. You find it at the library. I believe you can even find it online for free. But to take these matters up and to reflect on them, what is the purpose and the connection of the various events in my life? And begin to acquire a sense of the whole. After all, the assumption is Precisely that, meant to show us that life does have a destiny. We are on a journey, whether we like it or not, to a final destination. We can either understand and cooperate with that plan, or we can find ourselves carried along by the current of a river, neither understanding nor cooperating in the one who brings us to himself. In the end, our celebration today, we give thanks to Mary, 
who watches over and protects and intercedes for us on our journeys. We're not wanderers in a wilderness without protection, without guidance. We look to her as navigators look to a star to orient themselves along the way. We ask her prayers, we ask her protection, we ask that we would experience in our own journey the tenderness of a mother who cares so deeply for each one of her children. She's not withdrawn to enjoy her glory, her heavenly glory, without any attentiveness to those of us still laboring here below. No, quite the contrary. Her heart is given to us, her attention, her care, her concern. May we rely on that who call upon her as intercessor and patroness in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.